Greetings, dear listeners. This is this is an exciting day. Uh, this is the first the first episode of the Remnant Podcast as a product of our new media venture, The Dispatch. Don't want to quite call it a magazine. Don't want to quite call it a media company. It's 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 there's that line from The Simpsons where uh, Marge asks her French bowling instructor, um, "Brunch? What is it?" And he says. Something along the lines of, no one quite knows. It's not quite breakfast and it's not quite lunch, but you get a slice of cantaloupe at the end and something like that. So we're sort of that. <laughs> so as you can tell, I'm tired, but I'm not as tired as Steve Hayes. Uh, technically, my partner, but also my partner in a totally platonic sense. Um, but all, not that there would be anything wrong with that, but also, uh, technically my boss, cause he's the CEO of the dispatch. Steve, welcome back. That should scare everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, no, exactly. I'm the CEO of, of anything. No, it's good to be back. You know, there's another line where they, there's another, um, famous movie where they, they say it wasn't brunch. What oh. is it? But it's it's a series of those things in airplane where it's like the hospital. What is it? Well, it's a big building where they treat sick. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not as good as the not as good as the Simpsons reference or an Anchorman. Look, I'm really bad at pop culture references generally, so almost all of them come from airplane. I'm just happy to throw one in right here. Yeah, and actually, the last time you were on, you did a really long extended riff on airplane. A- Naked Gun. Naked Gun. Naked Gun. So <laughs> anyway. Same, same difference. Leslie, the whole Leslie Nielsen oeuvre. Correct. So anyway, we're recording this on how you, you're, we don't use the word launch, right? Yeah, I think soft launch, beta launch, yeah. rollout. Rollout. They, yeah. Sort of, it's sort of like a Broadway show that's going to make it to Broadway, but is being tested in Poughkeepsie or something that we're doing a that's little right. bit of that. Yeah. I mean, I, if we make it to Broadway, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, why don't we, uh, why don't we, Tell, tell people about the name, the dispatch. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry, I have, I still have this crazy cough. I have the lung capacity of a, of the kind of soldier that you would probably just put out of their misery. Um, so uh, we, I want to say we settled because we actually like the dispatch. I'm excited about. We it, were honestly. on, we were on the precipice of truly settling. Yes. Um, a couple times because we were the dispatch came in at the eleventh hour, last minute, yeah, very last. So minute. why don't you why don't you tell people? We didn't tell the story of we haven't told the story of any of this. Okay, so go we ahead. We did we did make mention earlier of just what a painful process mm-hmm. this was, which actually prompted a few of your listeners to send us some pretty good very, names. very good names. Yeah. Like a couple of them were sort of uh, vaulted into to leading. Contention at the moment. Um, we should before we even go to that. We should explain some of the suggestions we got from listeners. We would have been very happy to use. But part of the problem is is that either you can't get the domain, or you can't get the IP, or um, you know, uh, one of us hates and the others don't. I mean, there's all these weird considerations that are going on. Anyway, so go on. W- were there any names that one of us really loved and the others weren't that enthusiastic about? Well, all right. So there was uh, – <laughs> I want to be very clear about this. And I'm, I, I have the email, which at some point I'm going to read or maybe give over to one of the reporters writing about this. Uh, Steve very passionately believed passion, – I think passionately is the right word uh, – in the word junto – Junto. Junto. Okay, why don't you explain what Junto was and why you thought this so was this, a So this, I mean, it's the best, it's the best possible name other than, other than the dispatch. Uh-huh. Um, it was the best possible name. You, for the record, your email in response when I first proposed it was not, like, angrily 
denouncing it. You uh-huh. were sort of, you're like, ah, uh-huh. I'm Junto Curious. Uh-huh. So Junto is, is the name of the club that Ben Franklin started, I think, in you got a thing for ben 1720s. Franklin. I do sort of have a thing for Ben Franklin. Sort of obsessed with Ben Franklin. And it uh, ends, up, ends, ends up being... a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it ends up being a uh, – it ends up sort of leading us in a secure, circuitous way to the dispatch for, it does. Which, for which I'm grateful. Junto was a club that Ben Franklin started in a tavern with uh, basically 10 friends. And the purpose of this club was to engage in debates about matters of policy and philosophy and culture for the purpose of self-improvement and the pursuit of truth. Pretty simple. I love that as an idea, especially because from the beginning, we knew that this was going to be a membership-driven mm. media company uh, and, and that we were going to take membership seriously. I loved the idea of have, of stealing that name from somebody who's sort of arguably the, the quintessential American. Mm-hmm. I would say the father of American journalism yep, in, yep. in many respects and a genius. I also loved that it's a Spanish word, but I can see that there were – yeah, Pro- problems with that. So too. the funny part was, I had, so Steve writes this great. You know, there are all these weird things that all these guru types tell you that you want a name that's distinctive that can't be, you know, that 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 sort of owns the space by itself. Five letters is like best or something like that. All these different things, and so Steve makes this impassioned case for for Junto, and I read it to my wife, and I read all of Steve's arguments, and it's a sizable email. And and Jess says, you know, I agree with every single one of those arguments. There's just one problem. The name sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the only problem with it. I mean, it was great in every regard except for that. And the, the the very few people we sort of ran it ran it by in conversation, the first response was almost always do you mean junta? Right. Like, are you, are you going to overthrow uh, something? Is that, is that the masculine form of junta? Right, <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, the fact that it starts with a J but is pronounced junta or junto is a, was a, another potential challenge. I think we could have gotten past all of those. But it turns out that uh, it wouldn't have been available anyway. So all of my begging and pleading right. for that very special name. And for a while we thought about the new compass, which we discovered I cannot pronounce compass correctly. I don't hear it when I say it, but everyone, including my wife and you and Toby, constantly make you fun of me. Pronounce it sort of like comp ass um, instead of compass. But it's weird when I when, once you guys notice that I can't pronounce it correctly. Every time I said it, it's sort of like ten year old kids. The first time you um, inhale helium, you just laugh at anything I say. I would just say <laughs> new compass or whatever, and then everyone's like, "That's not how you say it." And it's weird. It's 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 like those guys who have strokes and like forget the letter H or something. I just cannot say compass correctly. We had uh, yeah, we we got that we got that uh, recommendation from a very smart uh, friend of ours, and, and we liked it for a bunch of reasons, but we also thought that it was maybe a little. It could be perceived as a little sort of chest puffery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of weird. We're going to show you the direction, which we, we, we are trying – we're doing everything we can to sort of not only appear humble in how we're approaching this, but actually to really be humble in how we're approaching this. And, and so that didn't quite work with that approach. Yeah, and, and if, because – I mean I think the technical term from social psychology is douchey. <laughs> um, but uh, – and because we want to avoid that here and stop just simply talking about 
how psyched we are about our thing, and we're going to come back to it. But we should just close the circle on how the dispatch relates to Ben Franklin and Junto. Then we'll do some rank punditry, and then maybe we'll come back to this stuff at at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So I was, I really wanted some kind of Ben Franklin tie-in, and we we had gotten to the point where we had, I mean, we at one point had a list of two hundred and fifty, yeah, possible names. We'd gotten contributions from some of the very smartest people we know, and and again, good ones. Some of which didn't work for trademark reasons. Some of which weren't quite right for us. But we were at the end. I mean, we were really settling. We had a, a couple that we nobody was excited about when people asked us. Right. Um, we would sort of uh, try to avoid telling them the name, which was right. a bad sign. <laughs> it was also became a, it started to become a legal and financial problem because we couldn't close right without the name of the thing that we were doing, and we couldn't get checks from people to like start this thing. And we we wanted the checks, <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. It was important to get the checks. So anyway, I was I, I then I, I t- I'd always been sort of interested in in Ben Franklin but through this process because I figured there's got to be something I mean we looked at sort of the, the the original name of the printing press that he went to work in uh, for his brother then he moved to London he worked at a different one the the street of the or the name of the tavern potentially where he held this junto um, the street that he was born in in Boston Milk Street I mean we it, I got a little probably carried away but I read a ton about Ben Franklin I was reading his autobiography and in a chapter where he talked a little bit about his interest in becoming a writer I mean he he, he became a writer in, in some respects by um, by faking his brother out he submitted these anonymous sort of letters to the editor or columns and slid them under the door and people loved them but they didn't know that this was Ben Franklin I think if, if I'm remembering correctly he was like 14 at the time huh. and wrote these and people thought they were absolutely brilliant, but he didn't cop to it for a long time. Anyway, I was reading, I continued to read Ben Franklin's autobiography. And in that section, he kept using the word dispatch in a number of different ways to talk about uh, reports that he was hearing from uh, overseas, the things that he was writing himself. He later wrote about it in the context of the war. And I thought because we're focusing on what, you know, what in the in the news jargon people are calling pushed content, newsletters and podcasts, we're sending this stuff out. The dispatch was particularly appropriate and we were happy to find out that we were able to get the domain. And I think we all really um, are enthusiastic about it now. Yeah, no, we're, we're very psyched and we're going to talk more about all of this in a little bit. But some people listen to this podcast for the Bigfoot erotica. Some people listen to it for the stories about my dogs. And some people... Uh, want the rank punditry. So we should do a little rank punditry. But before we get to that, just, just one funny thing. Um, I keep forgetting to mention, you know, that Ben Franklin wrote a very famous, was it an essay, Jack? Do you remember? It was, he wrote something famous called... It was a letter to uh, was a, a young man. It was a letter to young man Correct. called Fart Proudly. Oh, no, I'm thinking of a different letter that he wrote. Oh, okay. Um, what, what letter were you thinking? There's another letter uh, that Ben Franklin wrote that is way, would get him in serious trouble in the Me Too era uh-huh. about why he preferred to, how should I say, date uh-huh. older women. Okay. We don't need to go into that. Um, we don't. No. Um, uh, but the place, it's a true story. I found out about the, I believe, essay that um, Ben Franklin wrote called Fart Proudly was I was invited by Hillsdale or so I thought, to speak at graduation. Big honor, right? I was, was like in 2000, 2001. I thought this was a big deal. Like I'd arrived, whatever. So I get out there. Uh, My friend Scott Hall, who's still a 
fundraiser for Hillsdale, picks me up at the airport. We became really good friends after that. And he's driving me out, and I'm like, so, like, how big is the, you know, how big is the, the, the audience or the crowd or whatever? And he says something like, oh, I don't know, probably 60 to 70. And I thought he meant, like, the class. So, okay. So that means probably 400 people, right? Something like that, 300 people. And as we get out there, and then it was really only until basically the night before, maybe even that the morning of, that I found out that I was, in fact, speaking to the students of Hillsdale Academy, which is the mm-hmm. high school, the school on campus for basically the children of faculty and a few other people. And I was so honored because uh, a full third of the graduating class had picked me as their first choice to speak. And the graduating class had six people in it. <laughs> and so like two kids, I was their first choice. And, um, uh, and the whole room had maybe like 25 people in it. And like the headmaster was clearly like, not entirely psyched that Jonah Goldberg was asked to do this. And uh. so he gives his opening remarks and says, when the students, uh, when the graduating students told me that they wanted Jonah Goldberg to come here, I was reminded of Ben Franklin's famous admonition, if one must fart, fart proudly. I was like, wait a second, what? how am I supposed to take this? <laughs> so anyway, it's always stuck with me. So the bad news about our new venture is that there's just really going to be no news to talk about. Because everything's going great. Right. We're just going to have to find, find stuff. We'll be reaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so well, what do you make of the uh, – the, the, let's – we'll get to impeachment. What do you make of the whole uh, abandoning the Kurds thing? Well, it's a disaster and I think that's a euphemism. I mean it is – the idea that, that the president would do this I think is sort of stunning. The idea that he would do it in the way that he did it without apparently – according to credible reporting in a wide variety of news outlets, notifying our own commanders in the region um, until the decision had already been made. There were apparently no consultations. We didn't uh, pre-brief our allies in the region. We certainly didn't tell uh, the Kurds uh, until it was basically underway. It's hard to imagine uh, a greater betrayal of an ally than this. I I do think that Lou Dobbs got a heads up, just so you know. Nope. So that that kind of evens things out. A that, 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 <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time, probably. That may be. No, I I think. I mean, particularly when you think back on uh, previous betrayals of the of the Kurds. I mean, the, the, the Kurds had a lot of reasons to doubt us, um, even going into the two thousand three war. When you talk to the Kurds, they would quickly point back to the first Gulf War, and right. we we had asked them to sort of rise up against Saddam Hussein, the Shiites in the south, and the Kurds in the north. And then when they did, we didn't follow through, and. I remember I was actually talking to a uh, a young man. He was like in his late teens. He was from the South. He was a Shiite. But he could recite word for word the words that George H.W. Bush spoke to encourage yeah. them to, to rise up. And the Kurds had uh, sort of a similar experience. So there's a long history of that here. So obviously I think it's immoral to do this to the Kurds. The, the broader implications I think are are just as serious. I mean – who else is going to want to ally with us when, mm-hmm. when we're such an unreliable ally? And I mean, we've shown that, I think, quite a bit over the past two and a half years. Well, I'd actually extend that into the Obama administration yeah, yeah, yeah. in many respects. Because that's the polls. Yeah, text. right, right. Um, and and that's, that's a really crummy situation to be in um, for whoever is the next president whenever that person is the next president. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, beyond just the sort of the what people are saying, and I don't know if it's true, um, but there are a lot of smart people who are saying that there's going to be a 
bloodbath of Kurds, right? I mean, the yeah, Erdogan has said, you know, we're or it was maybe the foreign minister, you know, we're going to bury them in their ditches, yeah. and you know, they're going to drown in blood, and blah blah blah. And but the way that the only way they can avoid that is by actually cutting a deal with Assad or with it, which means cutting a deal with the Iranians, right? Yes, which isn't. Great, not great, Bob. Either, right? I mean, it's like it's just a mess any way you look at. Well, it. you think about people who are happy about this decision. I mean, it would it would include Assad, Iran, right. the Russians. Um, you know, th- th- this is a bad group of people. We don't want to be pleasing them. Um, so, I, I look. I think that the we're just beginning to understand sort of the implications of the longer term implications of this, if it in fact happens. And you're starting to see, I think, the the White House trying to to pull it back slightly. You know, the president saying, you know, th- threatening the Turkish economy if if they uh, go after the Kurds and then later touting Turkey as a as a great trade partner. Um, you can see that this was probably one of those examples. And I'm speculating here. I've not done individual reporting to verify this. But like the other examples that we've seen where the president just makes a last minute sort of knee jerk decision on multiple times on the Iran question, on the Iran deal, on the potential uh, Iran strikes. He he just makes a sort of a last minute ad hoc decision, and everybody else scrambles. Although he does say he consulted with everybody, well, the military military leaders have disputed that. Yeah, no, I know, I, uh, and, and they're more credible than he is. Yeah, including the guys actually running the special forces, correct, um, out of the Pentagon. So the, the the question I got is that I, I'm trying to adjudicate right because it becomes very difficult peeling apart. Zero to tens on all of the things that happened in the Trump administration. You know, what's a big deal? What's not a big deal? What is just sort of super tacky yeah. or or just a matter of style? And it's all over the place. And I guess what I'm shocked by is not so much that he did it, but that so many Republicans are willing to condemn it. Yeah. And I can't quite get – I can't quite decide whether or not this is a last straw kind of thing or if that this thing in and of itself is just so bad yeah. that they're just like, ah, oh, screw up. This is, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, I don't have a sense of it. Do you? I mean, I think it could be, it could be both, right? I mean, it, I think you've seen, if you look in the past couple of weeks, I would say beginning with um, the revelations about Ukraine um, and, and what's, what the president did and the transcript or the rough transcript of the phone call and You've had a small group of Republicans who have basically taken the public position that that was no big deal. The, the, the call is, quote unquote, perfect, as the president would say, but not many. Um, that's it's a, it's a relatively small number. You have a, a bigger group who's basically said we need to find out all the facts or they've scurried to hide from reporters so they don't have to say anything at all. But then you've had other people who have said this is problematic on, on the Ukraine revelations in particular. Then you had the president's tweet about celebrating the 70th anniversary of communist China. Mm -hmm. And you had, I think, Republicans sort of look at one another and say, what what is he talking about? Why would the president do this? Mm -hmm. Then you had the president proudly call for the Chinese to investigate Joe Biden after his some of his defenders had gone out of their way to say, now the president's not really calling for the Chinese to investigate. So you have this president who's been consistently critical of the Chinese and said they're untrustworthy in every respect, suddenly say, in effect, if they produce the report that I want on my political opponent, I will believe it. You know, it would be worth trusting. And then finally, you have the Syria events. I think the fact that all of those preceded this 
decision on Syria has sort of emboldened some Republicans who might not otherwise have spoken out. They're a little exasperated at this point. But I think the decision itself, I mean, to go back to your your one through 10 mm-hmm. scale, I mean, this is, this is, I think this is close to a 10. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it is the case that I think sometimes uh, the mainstream media gets obsessed with these things that, you know, at the end of the day, when we look back on the Trump administration, aren't really going to have mattered very much. Mm-hmm. This matters. This yeah. is a big deal. Well, also, I, I, you also, I mean, just trying to think it through, right? So many of the things that I also think matter, they're not going to have grand historic there's no potential for there to be this grand historic imagery associated with the Ukraine scandal. I mean, maybe there'll be a smoking gun memo or whatever, where someone will cry giving testimony. But you could have like the the burning kid from Vietnam photo, right? You yeah. could have the ki- the 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 people clinging to the bottom of helicopters video, right. with the Kurds being slaughtered, and I think. It's possible that some of these people just want to get way out in front of that. I mean, I hate being just trying to come up with cynical interpretations for this, but that's that's sort of the world we're in. If you don't have cynical interpretations, you have to think that the, all the stuff that came before this that no one denounced or that people just sort of dismissed was, according to these Republicans, not that big a deal, right? right? And that because this thing matters, right. they're denouncing it, but they didn't denounce those other things because they didn't really matter that much. So it's kind of like a defense of the Republicans to say they're cynical at this point. No, I think that's right. And I, <clears throat> I think they're, they're, the, the details are going to matter here too. I mean, we, we had communicated to the Kurds um, in advance and, and in effect that, that they didn't have to provide security because we were going to provide security, security at these important um, outposts. And so they didn't. And now we're gone. Right. Like, that really is sort of setting them up for slaughter. Now, we can hope that that's not going to happen. I do think, as I said, I think that you're seeing some parts of the administration try to scramble and, you know, issue warnings to There's Erdogan. also a report that the Americans have not, in fact, led, left the region yet. Um, I saw that this morning, which contradicts some stuff I saw earlier, so I don't know what the truth of that is. But yeah, I mean, there were, there were early reports, that the ones that, that they received in the field at 3 in the morning, yeah. um, saying, in effect, it's time to go. Um, there are disputed reports about how far, in fact, they've gone and what that means. It's, this is not, by the way, I think it's important to point out, this is not an actual withdrawal. I mean, you have Rand Paul and, and others sort of celebrating this as a withdrawal. That's not what's happening, which... You know, if if you're a non-interventionist and if you've been whispering into Donald Trump's ear for all these many months that we really just need to get out of everywhere, you know, either Rand Paul doesn't understand what's actually happening, which is basically just a repositioning of our forces. Right, they're going back so into that, Iraq, right? Right, right. So that so that the the Turks can have their way. That's a pretty cynical thing to try to pretend that that we're actually withdrawing and that this is some policy victory for mm-hmm. non-interventionists. Um, all right, so let's switch gears. On this podcast, we don't do McLaughlin style, zero to ten, zero being no chance, ten being metaphysical certainty kind of thing. But where do you see the uh, impeachment thing going? I mean, I think it's a problem. Um, certainly in talking to um, Republicans behind the scenes, there's sort of a different level of concern about this. Yeah. You know, I think people do think that it's a problem that the president said the things that he said on that call even even if you have some people saying in effect nah no big deal i think a lot of behind the scenes a lot of people do think it's 
a big. Yeah, the one thing from my limited reporting on this, and I'm, I'm, I, and actually, I could say I've done reporting. It's all been sort of off the record or on background kind of conversations. But I can say with fairly high confidence that literally nobody thinks that conversation was perfect. Right. Right. I mean, and it's not like you know the the ancient colloquies of the great philosophers. And Donald Trump's conversation with President Zelensky are the two great perfect conversations of all time, right? Right. right. Um, <clears throat> everybody thinks it was a problem. And a lot of the a lot of the arguments that the president's defenders made at the time, at the release of the call, have later become inoperative because the president himself has admitted more and more. I mean, he's t- he, he's basically said, "When I talk about corruption, I mean Joe Biden." Right. And I think, as you pointed out in a G file last, last week or the week before, you know, Donald Trump is. He is not somebody who marches around the world looking at the internal politics of allies or enemies, uh, calling for them to clean up their cor- corruption. You know, yeah, I'm pretty dr- sure drain the swamp in Kiev. He, right. I'm pretty sure there's corruption in Egypt. And he might says Al Sisi is his favorite dictator. Saudi right? Arabia. Yeah. And his friend Tom Barak. I mean, I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but he's got friends who have these deals around the world and not concerned about any of, of these things. Right. Right. So it's it's pretty selective concern about. Corruption, I think many Republicans, including a number that I've talked to, acknowledge that. They get that. And and this is the kind of thing that can break through. This is not hard for the American public, even an American public that is sick of politics and may not be following every twist and turn in every story. They can get this because it seems really ugly. Yeah, okay. So, but on the flip side, and since this is not just a bash Trump kind of thing, the Democrats really suck at this. They're they're really really bad at this, and I don't get. I mean, I guess I get it. Uh, this is mostly fan service for the Democratic base, and um, or appeasement of the Democratic base. You know, Ad- Nadler wanted to do this for a long time to avoid a primary challenge, and this is just one of these litmus test things for the AOC crowd. But if they're going to do it seriously, they got to get Schiff out of there because Schiff is. <clears throat> And I think this is kind of fa- – I mean, this is not to turn it back to Trump, but I think it is a fascinating thing that Trump is determined to do this this sort of retcon of the history of the last three weeks where he um, he really wants the world to think that the only people who think the conversation was bad were the ones who heard Adam Schiff's really stupid and bogus yeah. – uh, fictional account of the conversation right he's the only person saying that though. right and it's really kind of he, he really it's like he just he wants the jedi mind trick everybody to think the call was perfect he keeps saying the call was perfect but that the and that the people who don't realize it was perfect must have been misled by adam Schiff. right and i think that's nuts but it's also nuts that Adam Schiff gave Trump that totally, talking point. Totally. I mean, there's nothing so incredibly nothing foolish. By it. So incredibly foolish to do that. I mean, if if you believe as I do that the call itself was really problematic, right. read the call. Right. Like read the rough transcript and yeah. say this is in fact what the president said. You don't have to to dress it up. And I mean, I think you're right. A lot of this is is playing to the Democratic base and trying to get them excited. And and there are no doubt huge political. Um, overtones to all of this. You have had, it is true, as as Trump defenders will say, Trump supporters will say, that you know, some number of Democrats have wanted to impeach the president from day one um, for things that I think probably very few of us think were actually right. impeachable offenses. So in that sense, I think the, the pushback against Democrats is correct. 
and they are overplaying their hand. I would say that doesn't mitigate in any way the underlying problem, the underlying stuff here. But it does mean that they're that they are uh, handling this in a way that makes it less likely, certainly, that they're going to win Republican converts. Yeah, yeah. No, and and that's the thing is that, and it's funny. People keep talking about how the chief keep trying to get the number to twenty for senators. For senators, I haven't seen anybody point out that the number has to be at least twenty-one, because no senator wants to be run against in a primary as the deciding vote for impeachment. Right. Right. It's like. You know, you, you, you always need two senators to jump in, hold hands and jump on any unpopular piece of legislation because if there's one – if the second one senator puts it across the finish line and no one else gets on board, then every single person who voted for it can be attacked in an ad as the 51st vote right. for something. Right. And so – Either they get to 21 or 22 or they don't get there at all is, would be my prediction. Yeah, I think that's right. And you're seeing the president make an example out of Mitt Romney, right? right. I mean, Romney has, has sort of been, you know, should we say impeachment curious? He, he's spoken out in pretty forceful terms about uh, how problematic this is. And I mean, I didn't count, but what, a dozen tweets maybe the president has said making fun of the fact that Romney lost to Barack Obama, calling him disloyal, I mean, really teeing off on him and getting his supporters ginned up to attack Mitt Romney. Now, I, I, I think what Romney has said is is both true and defensible, and I commend him for saying it. Um, I, I, will, I will say I've actually I've changed my mind a little bit about Mitt Romney. You know, in 2012, I was, I mean, I was a strong supporter of the Tea Party on sort of ideological grounds. Um, my, Mitt Romney is a lot more moderate than mm-hmm. than I am uh, on a lot of things, um, and I didn't necessarily believe he because he seemed to me a finger in the wind politician. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't necessarily believe that he was going to be somebody to say, take strong and difficult stands. And I think he, he first s- sort of proved me wrong by picking Paul Ryan to put him on the ticket, which was a risky pick and a, yeah. bo- and a bold pick, and I think a good one. And and this, I think, makes me think again that I was maybe wrong yeah. to have underestimated the way that I did. He deserves credit. He deserves credit for this. He's not going to get a lot of credit for this, but there are a lot more senators. If you took a blind poll in the Senate, there are a lot more senators who agree with Mitt Romney on this oh, sure. than don't. And, yeah, no, I think- and he's still out there on an island. Nobody's really speaking up to, to support him on this. That's like Jeff Flake's thing about how if you did a blind, if you could do a, 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 a anonymous vote or what do you call it, blind, yeah, uh, thirty five senators Republicans would vote to impeach. Yeah, probably right. Um, although remember when I had um, Tim Alberta on here and I asked him how many Republicans really are bought into all the Trump stuff, and he said like half, which just seemed high to me. Oh, really? I th- back then, I remember I remember him saying the opposite. Maybe I misheard that. I thought, I thought he said something like one in fifty really believes it. Oh, maybe I'm maybe misremembering I... it now. Anyway, we can find that out. Um, so, one last bit of rank punditry, I guess, and then we will. Um, for those who are just chomping at the bit to hear more about the dispatch, do you think this kills Biden? Yeah, I think it really hurts him. I mean, I, I was, I was never, uh, I didn't ever think that Joe Biden was going to waltz to the Democratic nomination. Obviously, he's got a lot of name ID. He's got a lot of support. He has particularly support in crucial places um, among black voters, South Carolina and elsewhere. And that's the kind of thing I think that can can keep him a formidable candidate long beyond what he might otherwise have been. Um, but the, the, the energy in the Democratic Party is on the left wing of the Democratic Party. And 
I think the candidates who are voicing those ideas, representing that part of the Democratic Party most effectively and vociferously are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and and others. Uh, yeah, so, so I, I'm going to disagree with you on that one to a certain extent. I, I, you know, this is one of part of my, one of my minor obsessions is that the I can't remember the last podcast I mentioned this on. It might have been on Glop or something, but you know, Hillary Clinton's like the most influential figure of the last 20 years because because she was so unpopular among Republicans, she got Donald Trump elected and turned the Republican Party nationalist, and she was so unpopular among Democrats, she almost got Bernie Sanders the nomination, and ironically turned the Democratic Party socialist. And because the weird thing is, is that, so Hillary Clinton wins the nomination, she gets almost 3 million more votes than Donald Trump, and the entirety of the Democratic Party, with the exception essentially of Joe Biden and like Delaney and, you know, people who don't really matter and half of Amy Klobuchar, they all leap to the conclusion that the future of the Democratic Party is socialist, that Bernie Sanders really spoke for the Democratic Party. And they're all competing for Demi- for Bernie Sanders voters. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, right. Beto O'Rourke, they're all fighting for what I've been calling the barista socialist vote, yeah. right? And, um, and they're leaving their sort of conventional, mainstream, moderate Democrat vote to Biden. And I think that if Biden were not out of it, and even like Democrat, if you talk, you know, in green rooms, you talk to Democratic consultants and you ask them off the record, they're like, yeah, he's just lost a step, right? Yeah. And and they're really worried that when the debates get smaller and he can't hide behind the fact that they only speak for like 11 minutes total when it's 10 people on the stage, right. that he's going to just do his, you know, what I always call, you know, get these squirrels off of me stuff and get really weird. And, um, uh, and, but at the same time, I do think if, if Biden, if, 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 let's put it this way, if, if Obama had picked a different VP who was still sort of had basically Biden's profile of not necessarily a centrist, but a sort of moderate Democrat, but who still had his campaign chops, I think that person would get the nomination because everybody's dividing this other vote. And the the one of the things that's really changed American politics is that African-American voters are no longer defined the left wing of the Democratic Party. It's now all of these sort of millennial college graduate socialist types that liked AOC. And I just think that Biden personally isn't reassuring. And that's the problem. And he's losing that sense of inevitability, even though he's got some good polls this week showing that he's sort of doing better in Wisconsin and, and all of that. Better in Wisconsin than Elizabeth Warren in a head-to-head with Trump. Yeah. I think and, Biden was plus 11 and a Warren, Warren was plus four. And I'm, I, I wrote a column about a month ago or two months ago saying that what Biden should have done from the beginning is just run a front porch campaign and just just screw all you guys. I'm going to be the nominee I'll give interviews on my timetable. I'll release stuff on Instagram, but I'm not going to run around and potentially get nosebleeds. And, and but isn't that what Hillary Clinton did? Is it your theory that 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 would work better for Biden because he's not so despised by people? I mean, I think Hillary yeah. Clinton had a sizable constituency in the Democratic Party. That's basically what she did. And she got the nomination. Exceptions. <laughs> yeah, she got the nomination, but I think she was bringing a, a lot more. And I, don't, and I think we hadn't seen the pronounced shift to the left that we yeah. have seen that you described. I mean, I think if you look at, I mean, let me ask you this. Do you think this, the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is on the left? I do, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a subscriber to Harry Enten's thesis that the bulk of the Democratic Party 
is what he calls the hidden Democratic Party. You know, one of the reasons they don't show up to to Biden events is because they have jobs and they're like older and they know who they're going to vote for. And they don't want to hear from these socialists and they don't want to hear about converting unicorn poop into renewable energy. And so they just they know they're going to vote for Biden and so they don't show up. And so the, the, the intensity stuff doesn't measure on the cameras and all the rest. But the average Democrat describe the average Democrat. I don't have the numbers at the top of my head describes themselves as between moderate and conservative. The average Democrat is much older than than all these millennial people. Older people are more likely to vote. The average Democrat is, you know, likes their insurance, all of these kinds of things. And those are the people that Biden, Biden's got a huge generational gap in his support. But that's okay because older people are more likely to vote. And the Democratic Party in urban centers, the AOC kind of people and all that kind of stuff, I think they're much, much louder, and they have many, many, many more sympathizers among the blue checkmark Twitter journalists and all of that. For sure. So they get, they no get doubt. amplified. But you drive around the country, and you ask some guy in his 50s if he's a Democrat, or if he's a Democrat or a Republican, if he says he's a Democrat, he's probably going to like Joe Biden. And those people are going to be more likely to vote. Well, I, don't, some, I just don't some think of those, Biden... Some of those Democrats... Are, are no longer Democrats. No, that's right? true. Some that's of those Democrats true. are are now Trump supporters. That's absolutely. Um, I agree. I agree. And and I think that's part of the problem. I, I guess there's a there's a real risk in sort of mirror imaging Republicans in 2016. But if you look at what happened among Republicans in 2016, the intensity and the enthusiasm really did matter. Yeah. I mean, there were a number of people who we could analogize to to Joe Biden in 2020. You could say Jab. You could say mm-hmm. Marco. Others um, who. You know, might have had compelling policy messages, might have been the safer choice, but ultimately, Republican voters, the loudest Republican voters, the most those most frustrated with the status quo, were open to the message that Donald Trump gave because they thought he was listening to them, sort of channeling their anger and frustration. I do think there's something to be said for what Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and others are doing uh, sort of in parallel on the Democratic side. If I had to bet today, I would bet on Elizabeth Warren. I may be wrong. I was wrong in 2016. There was a, not me, uh, (laughs) there was a great vignette in the New York Times. Elizabeth Warren was in South Carolina. You know, she's just desperate for black voters or at the very least, blacks that she can put in her ads you know and so she has she goes to this historically black college i can't remember what it was called and they had all these signs printed up you know black issues are american issues and all this kind of stuff and they're going to hand them out to the crowd and have all the black students holding them up and like she'd be in front of them and be this great photo up and she walks out on stage and it's an almost entirely white audience oh, wow. none of the black students came no one from the black community came it was all sort of again the barista socialist millennial types who just sort of swamped in. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me, again, I, I, I think Biden's weakness is all his weakness as a, as as in not in his positioning or his positions, but he's just old. He feels old. He looks old, yeah. and and he gives you that sense of worry that Bush used to about. My God, where is this sentence going? Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, um, definitely. That that Trump manages to pull off as an asset. I don't quite get it, but um, uh, you know, when when Trump talks, when you read transcripts of some of the Trump stuff, you would think the paragraph is just going to trail off with him saying, "Does anybody smell burnt hair?" Right, right? <laughs> and just can thud. <laughs> um, but um, okay, so we should talk a little bit. We should talk a little bit more about um, the dispatch. Why don't you? Um, Explain, since you were the CEO, 
I can see this is going to be a running joke. Oh yeah, yeah, no. For the you're going to you're going to really, really for the next few years, every time stuff doesn't go exactly the way that's we good. want. Oh well, yeah, take it up with the CEO. That's, um, good. that's good. Why don't we explain what the people can you know, if they go to the dispatch.com and they sign up? What are they going to see now? What are they going to see in the next few weeks? And what are they going to see when we really launch in January? Yeah, that's that's a, a very good question. So. We're, we're we're starting this de- deliberately s- slowly, and we're going to sort of build toward the the real launch uh, on January seventh. So right now, it's more or less just an opportunity to sign up to get free updates, to get our free newsletters. We're going to keep uh, all of our products for free through the early part of next year. Um, at some point next year, we will change that, and we will begin charging people for memberships. Right. Um, right, so what are the products, though? We should talk about that. Yeah. So the G file still the G file, which I'm going to look to open up. Uh, increase the frequency of soon-ish. That's breaking news. Yeah, that's, that's great. breaking news. That's, that's great. Right. Let that's me pin right. you, since I'm the CEO, let me pin you down. How many uh-huh. times a week can people expect to get a G-file if they are paying members of the dispatch? Well, no one's paying right now except for people who are right. really supporting us with the lifetime membership thing. We'll talk about that in a minute because there's some confusion about that. Once we start charging people for memberships and wall off this, the some of our, our content, a good bit of our, our content, how many times will people be able to get the extra G files? I think the plan would be to do to keep the Friday one as per tradition, the strange, movable feast of my own internal dialogue with my demons that it is, um, and then do somewhat more focused, shorter, two other times a week. So something like maybe... Tuesday, Thursdays, and Fridays or something. But we haven't worked all that out yet. Right. Well, we've been working with our partners at Substack. I mean, that's a really important part of this whole launch. There's a, a newsletter publishing platform called Substack that for the past two years has focused on individuals who want to publish newsletters. And they do a great job. It's a super intuitive platform. We had conversations with them starting last spring, and we decided that we were going to partner with them to sort of build this. And they're building our entire digital media presence and super excited to be working with them. It's just an incredible team, very smart. And um, if anything goes wrong, technically call them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, unless, are you the acting CTO? No, you're now? the CTO because for people who don't know, like through the months of us trying to raise money and develop and build all this stuff up, one of the people that we were going to have in our staff for a gazillion years was a CTO. And every time Steve successfully merged two phone calls on an <laughs> iPhone um, or managed to get a calendar invite out on Google, uh, he's like, dude, we, we can save that salary. I, I'm, I, I, I'll be CEO and CTO. So. Let the records show that I was kidding. Uh-huh, less, uh-huh. less people think that, that yeah, uh-huh. you were serious. So going back to your original question. So throughout the fall, we are going to be adding new newsletters, um, new podcasts sort of building to this uh january launch uh when's your newsletter launching well uh, right now i'm going to be working with two of our young reporters declan garvey and andrew egger putting together this morning dispatch which we're going to start out uh doing two days a week and again ramp that up as we get to january and that'll be a reported curated newsletter on sort of news of the day. We don't want to be, so the philosophy of the company, I would say, is we don't want to be a slave to the news cycle. We, we are not going to do these sort of flitting from one thing to the next in search of clicks uh, because we're trying to monetize eyeballs. We want to be more deliberate. We're going to do this more slowly and sort of take a step back, think about these things, do some, make the extra phone call, make the extra five phone calls. 
Um, right. Listeners, you should go to thedispatch.com and read our sort of mission statement manifesto thing, which explains we're going to have no clickbait, no embedded ads, no pop-up videos of any kind, no pop-under videos, right. no autoplay videos. Um, it's We want the user experience to be about the actual content and not all that other stuff. Right, exactly. Which is one of the reasons that we, we are doing this on the membership model. And, right. And again, this is this is the the Substack philosophy, it's our philosophy, this this sort of works uh, very well together. So we are we're gonna build all of that up. Um, we hope in, in January to have a you know uh, an offering of newsletters that people can subscribe to. Um, they'll check the boxes, tell us which ones they want to get. They can get them as individuals. We hope they'll also be able to get them if they if they prefer to get one dispatch newsletter with links and excerpts of all the newsletters. Sort of a super feed. Super feed, yeah. right, exactly. Or you can get, you know, if people like to read these things on their phone, they can get individual the G file, they can get mm-hmm. the morning dispatch, they can get the other ones that, that we offer. So that will be um, 10 bucks a month. Uh, when we lift the paywall, we'll have a few of our products, a few of our written products that will remain free. Um, but most of it will be behind the paywall and for members only. The other thing, podcast I podcast will always be free. The podcast will always be free, at least for the foreseeable future, right? In part because we are still doing advertising there, in part because advertising on podcasts is like just not as corrupting in a weird way, yeah, and doesn't mess with the the user experience in the same way, and. Everyone loves to hear my incredible transitions to, you know, uh, untuck it and whatnot. Such so, a pro. Uh, such, yeah, a, such a pro. Yeah. Such a pro. And when we, when we launch the website itself, it, it will be spare at the beginning. We're looking at doing maybe three pieces a day, a big piece in the middle, an anchor piece we've been calling it, um, that allows the, the, the writers either on staff or outside contributors to go into some depth about right. an issue or, or subject. Slow and then reads a couple of, on some of yeah, them. Yeah, Quillette style in a certain way. Yeah, right. we like what Quillette is doing. There's a company in, in Britain called Tortoise Media that's been doing some of the, the, the same kind of things, slowing things down. Uh, they're very interesting in, in this space. So the, the basic idea is to if, if you don't know where to go for news and information to get sort of reliable information that doesn't come through the filter of the mainstream media – um, which you know, we have argued for years is biased to the left and doesn't come from you know some of the more fringy sites on the right, we think that, that will help to, to fill that void. Now, that, having said all that, there are plenty of places on the right that I still go. I mean, there's, we, we are not making an argument that there's nowhere to get good information on, on the center right. There is. Um, we just think that we're going to be able to to do it in sort of a different way and deliver it in a, in a different way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, um, but there are fringy people on the right, and so this text came in while you were talking. There's this ridiculous and truly dishonest person who writes for or works for One America News, who has just who makes up stuff all the time and calls herself a reporter. And I, I know this for a fact because, like, when I left NR, the way she reported is that she had, like, deep sources within NR and, like, <laughs> just it's factually a lie, right? Anyway, so upon the news about David French joining us, which we're very excited about, right? Uh, this Sapphire O'Hallahan or Emerald Robinson, whatever her name is, writes, finally, a newsletter for pro-drag queen and anti-NRA never-Trumpers 
who hope to throw the 2020 election to Democrats by creating Evan McMullen sock puppets in swing states while claiming to be conservative. Um, there are certain enemies you're just kind of happy to have, even if you're not going to spend a lot of attention on them. But we are going to get a lot of grief from a lot of different quarters. And uh, it's something like, like we got to talk to some of the younger people about how to deal with it. I mean, she's worth ignoring. I just think that was funny. Yeah, they're, and, they're mostly worth ignoring. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, do, we, we do our job. We do it well. That'll be its own reward. Still, I'm awaiting the full-throated bellow of the dragon of Budapest, <laughs> um, who will, no doubt, release um, the kraken. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so right now everything's free, and the offerings will increase as we go. We are offering this one lifetime membership thing for $1,500. We set a price. We understand a lot of people can't afford that, and we understand that a lot of people just... Even if they can't afford it, I want to wait and see, and we're totally fine with that. But we know that there are people of goodwill out there who have deep pockets or have the financial resources, and we wanted to sort of see if we could get a lot of their support. And it's going pretty well on that front. Yeah, We may offer some other ways to support us as we go. We are just figuring this out, and part of this whole thing is we're figuring this out as we go. We don't have all the answers yet. Steve and I have never done anything like this before. Uh, and let's be honest, nobody in that's media right. has has the answers. I mean, we're figuring, we've are we spent an insane amount of time looking at what other people have done mm-hmm. to try to succeed in this environment. We've borrowed some ideas from people we think are the smartest people who are working on these things, but they don't know either. So right. we're, we're trying to figure it out. I mean, I th- you know, it sounds simple and, and maybe a little Pollyannish, but I guess I believe that if, if we do a really good job, we work really hard, we provide good information that people know that they can trust, people will keep coming back to us. Yeah. Um, and, and in that sense, the, the, the market will work. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and part of it, again, is we think that the, the clickbait advertising model, first of all, is dying. Um, but second of all, we think it's really distorting of the media landscape because it encourages people to throw up more and more, for want of a better word, crap that invites social media virality and is just just to get the clicks and to sort of, as Arthur Brooks has put it, monetize dopamine hits, right? Where you just make people angry so they click on something and we don't want to play that game. And we actually think that, that, and also we just think that the the pop-up ads and the autoplay and all that kind of stuff, particularly on mobile, makes for a worse yeah. experience. I mean, there are there are sites, there are writers at, you know, places like, and I mean, I don't want to drop names, about, but, you know, plenty of places like the Washington Examiner or National Review that have that advertising model that have some really great stuff for some really great writers for them, you know, places that I like. But, be, but you try to read it on a phone, you know, where you're walking through an airport and your phone freezes up or you have to close three windows or you're sent over to some congratulations, you just won stuff. We don't want to do any of that. And we think people will pay – if they like the content, they'll also pay for the fact that they can actually read the content without having to deal with all of that nonsense. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. So please go to thedispatch.com. Sign up. You can't get through – oh, you can get through without giving us your email. But we want your email. We will not sell your email. We're not going to do anything creepy or Correct. weird with your email. You know, we're not going to go to some like Jeff – Epstein Island with your email and get wiggy <laughs> with it. Uh, but 
and the functionality of everything will keep improving so that if you get it, eventually if you're getting stuff you don't want it'll be very easy not to get that we'd love for you to subscribe um, we'd love for you to you know support us in this we are trying really hard to do something new and exciting and we think that particularly the remnant audience is is the right audience for a lot of this um, let me just can I can I just say one more uh, thing about about membership um, since I didn't emphasize it earlier you know, we're, we're pretty serious about the, the membership side of this. We really don't want this to be, you know, a, a place where we're sort of giving giving you all the information and you can take it and do with it what you want. Uh, you know, one of the things that we want to do um, on on the website when it's up and fully running in January is have this discussion room that will be a real discussion room. It'll be moderated. Uh, it's It's not going to be trolling, but we'd like to have a real discussion. And, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that we we'll spend less of our time on Twitter mm. and more of our time in conversation with the people who are paying our salaries right. to talk to them about what's happening in, in a real conversation. I mean, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to sound like a scold, but, you know, a, a conversation where we can provide some information and people can push back on it or challenge us or push us on our assumptions um, or give us new story ideas and, and actually have it be something that more resembles a, a conversation and not the, the sewage pit that right. some social media has become. Also, listeners should know that as we ramp up, you know, we're going to have more podcasts. We're going to do some sort of, you know, week in review type stuff. And, and then we're going to try to do some reported podcasts. Um, but we're also going to, you know, you know, we may disagree profoundly with the guys on Pod Save America, but their model is actually pretty impressive. And same yeah. thing with like the 538 guys. We don't disagree with profoundly, but they, you know, a lot of people have figured out some of this podcast event stuff. We want to take a lot of this stuff on the road. We want to go places that often don't get, you know, good conservative events. And if you're out there and you're interested in bringing us out, you know, uh, it's a little early, but think about it. Shoot us an email. Yeah. We'd like to talk about it. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to do events in D.C. and New York, but we like the idea of doing stuff in St. Louis and Oklahoma City, and we think that that's actually, as a just a pure business model part of it, that may be the way for us to do a lot of this stuff, because events, either live podcast events or small intimate dinner things or something, or conferences and panels, that's going to be a big part of all of this, and members, members will hear about it, and we're going to... Again, we're figuring it out as we go, but you know, our third partner, Toby Stock, knows a lot about these things. And it must be said that the, the, the people in the center of the, the country have much more sense, in, generally speaking, than the people, ah, than the people I, on the coast. I, knew this, I don't know if you saw my G-file uh, from last week, but um, it's becoming a problem, the hanging out with the Midwesterners thing. I mean, I got, I got, I got Jack already, who is more of an Ohio nationalist than a true Midwesterner. Um, uh, I think he says the Midwest is superior to the coasts, but Ohio is sort of the Prussia of the Midwest and should dominate all of it. Okay, I was being coy in this episode, but what the you I have never said anything like this. You are you are not <laughs> quoting me. I'm reading you're not between even the paraphrasing lines. me. You're you're trying you're you're trying esotericism into thinking. fan fiction. <laughs> this is not this You've is, said all sorts of things about Ohio. All sorts of things. About I don't. Ohio. Ohio is not the Prussia. Of- <laughs> okay, that part I was exaggerating. So we do have. I have to say, the Midwest is strongly overrepresented. It is on the staff. We have Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio, um, 
It's pre- pretty strong. It's just I, I promise that's uh-huh. that's just an accident. Yeah, I'm just, sure it just happened that way. And um, and I've started to pick up all sorts of weird uh, Midwesternisms. I, I or, or at least Steve Hayesisms. <laughs> in my entire life, I don't think I used super <laughs> as an adjective more than three times. Not describing either a comic book character or like like. Some ph- phenomenon of physics, and all of a sudden I'm like, "Oh, I'm super hungry. Oh, I'm super this. Oh, I'm <laughs> oh, super that. oh, geez, <laughs> no way. The, the truth, the traffic was super bad. Well, if you, I tell you what, you will know you are, are a converted Midwesterner if you walk around the corner, almost bump into somebody, and then sort of step back with a start and say, "Oop, yeah, like, O P E." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somebody pointed that out to me like a year ago, and the number of times that I do that, yeah. Um, and the other people who also do it are almost all from the yeah. Midwest. So I, I, the reason why I said I didn't think you read the G-Files is because I, I took some shots at you along these lines and then you never responded. So I just assumed you missed them because I have a line in there about the audacity of Ope. Um, and, uh, I did not yeah, no, then it's get – maybe I just lost interest after the first few paragraphs. It's entirely possible. I started it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think once you realize that when I was talking about curds, I wasn't talking about cheese curds, but actually these people (laughs) in the Middle East, you just, you know, whatever, man, and walk away. (laughs) Okay, so uh, thank you to everybody for indulging us in the self-indulgent podcast. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's already signed up. Certainly thank you to people who signed up for the Lifetime Membership. Thank you for everybody who's expressed their support for us. We really, really appreciate it. We consider you guys to be going along for the ride with us, and it's not like we have all the answers. So if you guys have suggestions, if you guys have news tips, we definitely want to hear those too. And um, uh, really appreciate it. Steve, you have anything else you want to add? No, we're excited excited to get going. Yeah. All right. So with that, I will see you next time. Such f- old men. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yeah. Okay.